0: Duncan with us. He's been the preaching minister of the Memorial Church of Christ in Houston, Texas since 06. Uh, before that, he worked in Edmond, Oklahoma. Before that, he was a fellow missionary uh, with uh, his, fam- his uh, wife, Barbara, and Barry and uh, his wife, Sophia, were down there about the same time. We were down there about the same time working in Brazil as missionaries. So it's a treat for all of us to have time with David. Uh, unfortunately, his, uh, his wife is not here with him. Had a kid come in from a lock in, worn out. His oldest daughter just got in this morning at five thirty from Brazil. She is worn out, so she elected to stay there. But we are so blessed to have David with us tonight. He's going to be speaking out of Ecclesiastes. His title is Gathering and Sharing. Come speak to us. Tonight my topic is really loud. Tonight I'm talking about gathering and sharing and what it's like together. We are in this world of where we like things, we like money, we like to have stuff. If there's anything we like more than money, we know what that is. It's stuff is what we like. And that's the reason we have money, so we can buy what we want to make us feel good at whatever moment it is. We want to feel as comfortable as possible, but it's an interesting thing to think about those who gather and then those who share. And the responsibility that's there for not just gathering, but there's a responsibility for sharing as well. I know this summer that you're studying Ecclesiastes and have been in this series on Ecclesiastes. It is amazing that this Wednesday night I'm starting, or this Sunday night, I'm starting a series on Ecclesiastes huh, I wonder how that worked. So I'll be preaching part of this over again. Not exact, but part of it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know that passage that talks about a time for this and a time for that. And we won't read the whole passage tonight, but you know in verse 1 it says that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then to the verse that I was given tonight of verse, of verse 6. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There's a time when you, get a, when you get rid of things, and then there's also a time that you bring things in. And when we think about this idea of gathering as people today in the United States, it sometimes can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Is it wrong to gather? Is it wrong to gather things? And what I'm saying is, is it wrong to accumulate? <coughs> Excuse me. Is it wrong to accumulate things? We live in a time when in those people who are known as theologians, many of them right now writing in papers and, and journals that would make most of us do a little bit of snoring, are writing, it's wrong to accumulate things. It's wrong to have more than other people have. We might even call that a form of socialism or even communism to in one definition. Of is it wrong to gather things? Maybe the question more so is have we gathered too much? My daughter that came in this morning from Brazil, and I had really she had really wanted to come tonight. When she got off the plane, I knew there was no way she was coming. She is emotionally, she is spent. And I knew that our youngest daughter, she told me she was coming for sure. And then whenever we picked her up at 7 o'clock this morning, I knew there was no way she was coming. I said to my wife last night, I said, what kind of parents are we? We have one daughter flying over Venezuela right now and one at a lock-in running all over Houston. We are terrible parents. We don't even know where our children are. But they are good girls. But when we think about this idea of gathering too much, my daughters were both born in Brazil. Our youngest was only eight months old whenever we moved back, and my oldest was was a kindergartner. We have been back to Brazil probably, oh, every three or four years since we moved back to the States in 1999. They know it well. But my oldest daughter, Annabeth, had never been there by herself. She did an internship with a, with a church in niteroy Brazil. And I call it the Fort Worth of Rio. It's the part you don't hear as much about. But they claim is better. You know how that is. It's where all the good pictures are taken of the Christ statue and of Sugarloaf Mountain. This morning, as we sat in our master bedroom, my wife and me and, and my oldest daughter, Annabeth, she said, it's amazing how big our house is. She said, it's a lot bigger than it was six weeks ago. She said, this room... It's bigger than one of the houses where I went to visit. It's amazing what we have. Is it that we have gathered too much? This is an interesting subject for me to talk about because I grew up in an extremely poor family. My dad was a preacher. He died when I was 12 years old. We lived in what they called the preacher's house. Do you remember those? Well, three months later, it was a wonderful congregation in a small town in the Texas Panhandle. Good, good people. But they said, another preacher's coming, you've got to move. We understood that, except we had nowhere to go, and I had a mother with a high school education who found a job making minimum wage. I went to work after school immediately right then as a 12-year-old. It was not an easy life. For part of that time, we lived in an apartment that was a a studio apartment that was connected to a garage for an 18-wheeler You can't imagine how little our little little Chevy Citation looked in the middle of that that garage. Whenever I was sitting on the couch, I could put my feet in the sink, but never when my mother was in the room. We moved to a house for a short time, and then finally moved into a little trailer house that my mother eventually sold for $4,000. I grew up pretty poor. I understand that side of what we would call below the poverty line. The only reason I went to college is because a family I didn't know paid my way to go to Oklahoma Christian. They said, here's the money, go to college wherever you want to go. That's how I got there. Have we gathered too much? Have we, do we have too many things? Because when I start looking around at the things I have, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. Back a few years ago, after we moved to Houston, I got it in my head that I wanted to go and do a a doctorate, It's a doctorate of ministry. The reason that there are those of us who in academics go and get a doctorate is because the purpose of it is because we love school so much that when you do a doctorate, you will hate it so much you'll never go back again. It's like overdosing on academics. That's the purpose. So for three years, I've done nothing. And then I signed up for an online class the other day. I thought, what have I done? I'm going back to my habit again. And I did a portion of my work on, you have to find something that everybody else is thinking about, something new. You know how it is in academics, you have to have something new. And right now everyone is talking about the poor, and Jesus care for the poor, and Jesus wanting to reach out to the poor. And believe me, I want to reach out to the poor. I've... I've been one. So I decided to do my work on Jesus reaching out to the wealthy. And whenever I went in to, to present my, my defense, the only thing my professors wanted to talk about was that portion of the paper, which was fun because that was the part I was really prepared for. That Jesus had a heart for those who had me. We don't know anybody's bank accounts in the New Testament, but I want us to think about some of the wealthy folks or what we might call wealthy people in the New Testament. For example, one of those you can think of right away is Zacchaeus. Don't you remember Zacchaeus in Luke 19 that, that this wee little man had a whole lot of money? I always imagine him looking like Louis on that old show Taxi. Do you remember? I think that must have been what Zacchaeus looked like. He had a lot of money, obviously, and Jesus talked to him about his life and what to do, and Zacchaeus made some decisions as to what he would do with his money. Then you go over into the book of Acts, and there are lots of examples. You think about Cornelius in Acts 10. Usually the way what we talk about Cornelius being is the first Gentile convert, right? That's what you say in Bible Bowl always. First Gentile convert, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. And you know that Cornelius was a man that had something. He had a home, and he had people in his home, and had enough room and space for Peter and all the entourage to come there. He also was obviously a military officer and he would have made more than those who weren't officers. But he was obviously a man that had some things. Then there's Mary. I don't mean Mary the mother of Jesus, but Mary the mother of uh, mother of John Mark, right? In Acts chapter 12, do you remember her? And you remember she had a house in Peter's in prison? Do you remember that? And the church is meeting. Her house is so big that the church is meeting at her house. One thing, if you go and do archaeology, which I'm not an archaeologist, but from what I understand, if you do archaeology, you find out that the wealthy homes in Jerusalem were near the prison. Isn't that odd? So there is a prayer group that is praying near where Peter is in prison. And you remember that the angel let Peter out, and Peter gets out and he goes to the house? And this woman is wealthy enough that she has a courtyard in front of her house. It's more than just a shack, but there's a little yard there, and she has a maid. You remember what happened with that maid, don't you? That she runs in. She doesn't believe what she's. They don't believe what they've been praying for. It can't be Peter, it must be his ghost. But there's a woman that had some means, had some wealth. Then there's a man later on in Acts chapter 13, Sergius Paulus, who works for the proconsul. That he's an attendant to the proconsul, that obviously he's a man that would have had something. There's Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, and you remember Lydia, that Lydia obviously was a woman that, that sold purple and was a businesswoman. There was Jason in Acts chapter 17 that had enough money that he was able to pay the bail money for Paul to get out of prison. There was in Acts 18, uh, Titius Justice, who was able to house Paul. And then there was a man named Mason or Manason who was so wealthy that he had an extra letter in his name. He must have been really wealthy. That's really how you spell it. I didn't make this one up. But he also housed Paul and had a place big enough that he could have had people in. So when we start thinking about gathering, it makes us stop to think about the people in the Bible that the church addressed. Many scholars today say that by the time the church had reached the end of the first century, there was a solid middle and upper class to the church. I don't know how they know all of that exactly, but you can see from some of these names and some of these people of what they had and what we see outside of outside of 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 Bible literature but in the ancient literature that there were people that had some extra money you see the problem or the issue is not about money that's not the problem here the issue is about how money is used there's a big difference here isn't there It's about how money is used. Do you use it to bless people or do you use it to hoard it and to hold it for yourself? Is it one of those things that has become a temptation for us that we just can't handle? Whenever I think about the people that I told you about in the beginning here that helped me, their daughter had been our neighbor several years earlier. My dad, as I said, had died. I'd been to a camp at Oklahoma Christian. I came home from the camp, and I said to my mother, sitting on the porch swing in our little trailer, more than anything, what I want to be is a preacher. She said, I would love that for you. But she said, you know good and well we don't have money to send you to college. In those days, Oklahoma Christian, it only cost $5,000 to go to. Boy, would I take that day over again. I said, you know what the song says, the Lord will find a way. I don't expect you to believe all this because you weren't there, but I believe it because I was there. Five minutes later, our phone rang. The woman who had been our neighbor, not a member of the Church of Christ, we hadn't even seen her in a few years. She says, my parents are wanting to give money away, and I told them that your son would be going to college. The next morning we found out they had given us $20,000. They paid it all. We went to thank them. How do you thank a person who's just paid for your college education? My mother baked them a cake. I guess that's what you do. And I talked to the man. I said, I don't know how you've done this. He said, you know, I keep trying to give it away. And for whatever reason, God just keeps giving me more. He said, you know that big track land out there between the divided highway? I said, yes. He said, I owned all that. And he said, the county wanted one side, then the county wanted the other side. He said, now people are wanting the middle part. I said, that's good. I'll have children who will go to college also. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You see, the issue is not about money. It's how do you use the blessings that you have? How do you use the gifts that God has given you? And if they ever get in the way, then may we lose them all. So that they are not in the way. You remember what the Bible says, what James said in James one twenty seven, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what we call pure religion. Jesus illustrated it in another way in the middle of an illustration in Matthew chapter twenty five, <coughs> excuse me, in verses thirty five through forty. He says some very famous words we know. When he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, I want you to understand that, first of all, this is what Christianity is. It's helping people who can't help us back. It's not looking for something in return. I remember a time years ago, I was somewhere outside of Elk City, Oklahoma, if you know that part of the country. Not a lot out there. And I'm driving my car and I have a flat tire. Well, these two men come over. I'm just right at, right at a Love's truck stop. These two men come over. They say, Sir, you don't need to get your clothes all dirty. Let us do that for you. No, get out of the way. I said, I can do it. No, get out of the way. We can do that. Well, I mean, they had the jack up on the car. They had the the tire on. And, and the other one back in the trunk. I mean, it was incredible. And then, and I said, thank you so much. He said, I think $20 will cover it. <laughs> I, I thought in my head, well, that's not too much for a sermon illustration. Thank you. You see, he wasn't helping me, and I was also scared, what if I don't have $20? But he wasn't helping me to help me, he was helping me because he wanted something. We don't help people because we're looking for something from them, we help them because it's the right thing to do. We help widows and orphans in this case because there's nothing that they can give back. But I want you to understand here that you can't close a person if you don't have clothes. You can't give someone something to eat if you don't have food. You can't give them something to drink if you don't have if you don't have water or something to drink. It's not that you have to give everything away in order to be in Christ. However, you have to be willing to give everything away. There is a big difference in those two things. The problem is as we start adding things to our collections There are fewer and fewer things often that we are willing to give away. Oh, I need that. Oh, I need that too. Oh, I need that. Every once in a while I watch that show Hoarders. you know that show? And they'll go in someone's house and they'll say, and I understand that this becomes a sickness. I understand. But they say, okay, we're going to help you today. And are you really serious? I'm serious. I want to throw it away. Okay. Well, how about this lamp over here that has no wire to it. Oh, I don't want to get rid of that. Okay. Well, how about this blanket over here with 27 holes in it? No, I need that.
1: And they go through the
0: house. There's nothing that can be thrown away. Well, I understand that that can become a sickness, but how many of us do the same thing? Oh, I would help, but, you know, I don't want that to mess with me going out to eat. I don't want that to bother my vacation. I don't want that to bother anything else that I might have planned. And so sometimes all we do is give out of the excess rather than give because it's the right thing to do. You remember what the Bible says as well, that they shall know us by our love, right? We shall be known by our love. I could lead us in that song tonight, but you wouldn't wouldn't know the tune I was singing because I don't carry a tune. If we are to be known by our love, and you look back at these two scriptures that we read tonight from Matthew and from James, it means that we help the hungry. When there are people that need physical and spiritual food, we should be the people who are known for feeding them. When there is an opportunity to help someone, we help. But the way that that our love is manifested is that we help the thirsty. We give a drink to those who need it. We help the needy, those who are just down and out. It's so easy to get frustrated, especially as a minister, with those that we help who don't, who aren't what we call success stories, who take and take and take. And then sometimes it makes it difficult to give to the next person because you say it's not going to go anywhere. I want to share with you a story just real quickly of of something that's just happened in the memorial congregation. One of our ministers on staff, he's our involvement minister, uh, is a wonderful man. They're a wonderful family. They have four of their own children, one that's grown, uh, one in college, one in high school, one in junior high. We have several families in the congregation that came to us through Hurricane Katrina that they came without anything. There are some incredible stories. People in the congregation are sending one of those boys next year to Oklahoma Christian to college. He'll be the first one in his family ever to attend college. Of anybody that they can find in any aunts, uncles, cousins, anybody. It's going to be a great thing. There was another mom in another family who she would lock her kids out at night. And when her oldest son, who was a, now a senior in high school, he turned 18, and she wasn't receiving welfare money for him anymore, she wouldn't let him eat anymore. And they had to do their own. They paid for their own laundry, so you can imagine that boys aren't going to spend their own money on detergent. And when people in the church helped them, she took all the money. And their rent was paid month after month after month. People wanted to help. They wanted to help. There were bed bugs. And so all new furniture was brought in. People just out of their hearts gave beds and couches. And finally... She said, I don't want any of that anymore, and I don't want my kids anymore. And this involvement minister just took two of those boys into his house. And so the one who's 18 will be a senior in high school and will be a great blessing to our football team. I'm really excited about that. We live in the same neighborhood. We had a stellar year of 1 in 10 last year. So we're excited. He's good. And the brother, who will be a sophomore in high school, had nowhere to go. And now someone has taken him in. That is a beautiful story. That's love. You see, that's what we do when we love people. I wish I were telling you the story that I had done that. But I haven't done that. It's someone else. Christians will be known because they help the hungry and the thirsty and the needy, and the imprisoned, those who can't speak for themselves, the orphaned and the widowed, and on and on. You see, none of these people are the beautiful people. But those who are known as the beautiful people, so to speak, who have jobs and money and education, are asked to take care of other people. A little congregation that we were had in Brazil early on, we had about 40 people in the congregation. Most of the people in those first years were very very poor and and there were some stories to tell. Let me just say. And we had a family come that was college educated and wealthy and clean and everything you could imagine, very picturesque Family, come one Sunday. Well, the first man they met when they came in to the building, he has a phobia. He washes his hands all the time, never stops. His hands are, are, are bloody from washing so much. This is the first man they meet. The next man they meet was a man who who believed that the Russians were watching from a satellite and watching him and that they were watching the church. And so I'm quickly moving these normal people away. And all at once it hit me. If a man with a hand-washing problem and a man with a mental problem can't find a home in the church, where can they find a home? The church better be a place that is full of people who have issues. Because let me tell you no matter how much money we have or how 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 much education we have or whatever kind of job we have, every one of us has issues. Just some of our issues aren't as aren't as open or they're not as or they're not as as socially unacceptable so to speak. But they all keep us up sometimes at night. Christians are people who are known by their love that help those Who need help? Wealth can be dangerous. It's not bad to have wealth, but it can be dangerous. You see, it can cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to put our eyes on Ben Franklin. We move our eyes from the Savior to the $100 bill, don't we? And not just one hundred dollar bill, right? It has to be used properly. It has to be used the right way. One uh, scholar wrote, the wealthy can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impossible peephole. You remember that idea of of a camel going through the eye of a needle? When my parents were converted, I was just, I was, I don't guess I'd even been born yet, but my mother was expecting when my when my parents were baptized. And the people who studied the Bible with them, a few years later, my parents went to their house. My parents didn't have a lot, but they went to these people's house, and the people that had baptized my parents did have a lot. And they were building this ginormous room in their house. Huge room. And my mother thought, she told this story many times. She said, I thought, oh, they have gotten materialistic. Look at what they're doing. I can't believe they would do this. And in her own words, she was judging them. And I don't know if my parents had a funny look on their face or what it was. But the woman said to my mother, we have built this room so that we can have the whole church in our house. That's the way we plan to use it. And that is exactly what they have done for years, for years. The night that it was incredibly touching to me was the night that they hosted a dinner when we were raising money for a church building in Brazil. And I was sitting in that room for a fundraiser for a church building In another country as a second generation or what you might call a grandson in the faith of those people. That is using what you have for the glory of God. It's not that you had to give all the money away so you couldn't build the room. It's but the room needed to be used for the glory of God. Do you understand the difference? It's not that you give it all away, but it's you use everything you have to help other people or to bring glory to God, whatever that is and however you do it. Gathering is good only if I'm willing to share. And if I'm not willing to share, then it's a bad thing. There's a family in the memorial congregation that's been very blessed. And they were close to them. And the woman was telling my wife the other day that they counted, said to them, they wouldn't tell this to anybody else, and I wouldn't tell you their names because I, they'd shoot me for that. I want to live. But they said, they counted, told us we need to quit giving because we have given more away this year than what we made. And they said, well, we don't care about that because we have enough for a lifetime right now. We just want to give. Wouldn't it be great? to think of ourselves that way. Not so we could give ourselves a pat on the back, but think of all the people that would be helped if we lived that way. Gathering is good, only if I'm willing to share. But for those of us, and I imagine in a church setting like this, there are some of us that we are very sensitive to those who need help, that we want to help. And so let me throw this little caveat out to you, and that's that I can't help all, But I can help some. The city we lived in in Brazil, at that point there were 1.2 million people in the city and 700,000 lived below the poverty line. I felt guilty every single day. The city where we lived, the poor people lived up on the mountains, and there were mountains everywhere. We lived in a high-rise building. It wasn't a fancy place, but it was a nice place. I looked straight out at people in in these homemade shacks every day. And it hit me that if I gave if I had seven hundred thousand dollars to give away and I gave everyone a dollar, that I still would have done nothing for the cause of poverty in the city. Because it wouldn't have done anything. And one day we were in our car driving to some driving out after going to the grocery store. And I said to my wife, I feel so guilty. Look at all these poor people, and what are we doing? We're not doing anything. She said, well, where are we going right now? I said, we're going to Eliani's house, but we're not doing anything. She said, what do we have in the back seat? I said, well, we have, we have groceries back there, but what are we going to do for all these people? She said, who are the groceries for? I said, they're for Eliani, but what are we doing? She said, we're doing something about it right now. We are taking a woman groceries who has no food in her house. I said, ah, I hate it when my wife teaches me something. (laughs) I realized I couldn't help everybody, but I would choose a few people that I could really help. And while I could give a little bit every once in a while to a lot of people, I could really make a difference in the lives of a few people, and I chose to do that. And a family chose to do that with me when they gave to me. And they did it with others as well, because they could help a few people. But we make a difference in people's lives. Now let me stop this part. I've got a couple minutes here. This is all about those of us who give. But sometimes we're on the other side of it. Sometimes we have to accept help. Maybe it's that we're accepting financial help. But I'm not talking just about financial help. Sometime, there's a good chance you are going to find yourself or your mate or your child or your parent in the hospital and very, very ill. And you're not going to want to accept help, possibly. Oh, I don't need help. I don't need food. I don't need people to come and sit so I can go home and and rest. I don't need that. Take it. Take it. Don't rob other people of their joy. Let them help. It's a hard thing to do. I love to preach this, and I hate to accept the help. I'm just telling you. But accept it. But understand this for those who are in the business of accepting more than giving. Accepting is good only if I'm willing to share. If I'm always on the taking end, and never on the sharing end, I better stop and look at my heart because my heart is in the wrong place. I need to be one that is willing to share. And maybe you say, well, I don't have anything to share. I don't have any money. If you could write a thank you note to someone, that's giving a lot. If you could just stop and ask someone how their day was, tell them how much you appreciated them, that's a lot. When I was in college, some, a teacher influenced me to do this, to, to say thank you to people who helped me. They don't even offer this anymore in in high school, but when I went to school, and a lot of you did, we had typing. Do you remember typing? Our kids wouldn't even know what that is. I found my high school typing teacher when I was a senior in college. And this is because I've really been influenced by this teacher to do this. And I found her and I said, I want to thank you because I realized without you, I would have flunked out of college because I didn't know how to type. She said, really? (laughs) It was almost like, are you wanting me to change your grade? I mean, that was almost the reaction. It was no. Thank you. I don't know what I could have given her, but I could say thank you. We went back to Brazil last year to go to the 20th anniversary celebration of the congregation that we got to help start. And when we were there, there was a man there, one of the families. They've been there for probably 15 of the 20 years, maybe more than that. And the reason we were able to go was the family paid our way. We didn't ask for money. They paid our way. They paid everything, airfare, hotel, the whole thing. They said, we want to do this for you. We were very touched. And I told the church, In Brazil, the reason we're here is because a family paid for us to come. And this man who was a taxi driver, strong Christian man, being elder one of these days, after church he came to me and he said, I understand somebody helped you come. I said, that's right. He said, I'm glad my Portuguese is good enough for you to understand that. And he said, I've had this flag. He had it all folded up, a, a Brazil flag. He said, I've had this flag hanging in my taxi for all the years that I've been a taxi driver. And he said, I want you to take this and give it to the people who sent you back and tell them thank you that we needed it. Well, boy, that will will make you fall down in tears. It wasn't a lot. The flag probably cost a dollar. That was more than a million dollars. It's a thank you. There is a way to say thank you to people. Don't always be on the accepting end, but also be on the giving end. Tonight I'm going to let you out a couple of minutes early, because, and I'm, I'm not done quite yet, but the reason I am is because Mark told me that he's used to, you all are used to him going long, and I want to be more popular than he is, so I'm going to go <laughs> short. But I want us all to think about what am I sharing Financially, but also what am I sharing as far as my heart goes, emotionally, and physically? What am I sharing with people? And the most important thing to share, obviously, is the good news of Jesus. Does anyone in my neighborhood or at my job know that I'm a Christian? Does anyone know that Jesus is the most important thing in my life? Have I ever shared that? That's what I want us to share. And through these acts of service that we've talked about tonight, this opens the door to saying, well, I gave you this, not because I'm a good guy or because I'm a fine, upstanding American citizen, but I gave it to you because I'm a Christian, and we just want to help people and somehow speak a word for Jesus. He spoke a few for us. You have a prayer, or what you got to think.